Hello Darksiders, I hope you're all well. Just a heads up about today's story. It contains some sensitive material that is not appropriate for little ears, so listener discretion is advised. With that said, let's get on with the show. Today's story takes us to Las Vegas, Nevada, the casino capital of America. Known for its 24-hour gambling, dining, entertainment, and quickie wedding chapels. It attracts on average 42 million tourists every year, and it is a popular downtime destination of the rich and famous. And so it was here in Las Vegas on the 18th of June, 2016, that one of the most prominent people in the USA was holding an event. Almost 2,000 people were in attendance, and as the crowds cheered and chanted for the main speaker to take to the stage, a young man took his seat in a section near the front. This young boy had travelled in total over 5,000 miles to attend the event to see this person speak. And this young man was 20-year-old Michael Sandford from Dorking in Surrey, United Kingdom, a small rural market town an hour and a half south of London, a truly tranquil and beautiful area. Michael had grown up and lived in Dorking all his life, and he was extremely close to his family and adored his four-year-old half-sister, Jessica. Life hadn't always been easy for Michael. He had found it hard to fit in at school and was frequently bullied. He had a suite of medical issues that made him a target for the bullies. And the more that he was picked on, the more Michael retreated into his own world and stayed within the safe confines of his home and family, where he felt the safest and where he felt the happiest. He was extremely polite, articulate, intelligent, and had a truly kind, quiet character. After school, Michael continued to live with his family but because of his medical problems, he struggled to find work. However, it wasn't long before Michael discovered the internet and a whole new world emerged for him. One that came with acceptance, friendships and human connection on a scale that he'd never known in his short life thus far. And it was through the internet that Michael met a girl and they quickly started an online relationship. But soon into the relationship, Michael told his family that he wanted to go live near his new girlfriend so that they could have a real relationship and see if it could work out between them. The only problem was, his girlfriend lived in America. After much pleading from Michael, his family capitulated. And so in January 2015, Paul and Lynn, Michael's parents, waved Michael off at Heathrow Airport. They were very worried for Michael's safety, but they truly hoped that this new relationship and the American experience would be the change that Michael so desperately needed in his life. And as they saw their child melt into the hordes of travelers, Lynn and Paul had no way of knowing at this point that their son was going to go on to attempt a crime so big that it could have changed the course of history. A crime that would lead to an unprecedented court case in the United States. A crime that ultimately almost murdered one of the most powerful people in the Western world. This is Darkseid and I am your host, Zeus. So, how did a young boy from a sleepy rural England area end up almost changing the course of history? And just whom was this powerful person that he tried to murder? Hmm. Let's find out. We're going to build the wall, okay? Believe me. We're going to build the wall. Are you serious? What are you thinking? Michael Sanford being led out of this Trump rally moments after trying to grab a Las Vegas police officer's gun. A federal complaint charging Sanford, a British citizen in the U.S. illegally, with an act of violence. Sanford telling Secret Service he had driven four hours from Southern California to the Vegas rally 
to kill Trump. Michael had tried to kill Donald Trump. Now, my British listeners may be aware of this story as it was covered quite well in our news. However, I'm fairly sure my American friends, which makes up 40% of my listeners, probably have not heard of this story. Well, there's a reason for that. Outside of the regional news in Nevada, this story was not picked up by the national media. Why? I hear you ask. Well, I'll be coming on to that later in the story. But to understand just how and why this quiet, family-oriented boy from sleepy rural England travelled 5,000 miles to try kill the to-be 45th President of the United States. Well, we need to go back to the beginning for this one. He was very bright and bubbly and cute and sweet and adorable. He was the apple of our eye. Michael was born to Lynn and Paul Sanford in May 1996. From the start, with his blonde hair and blue eyes, he was their angelic little angel. He had a sunny personality, laughed often, cried little, and found joy in the simplest of things that other children his age couldn't yet appreciate. However... I think we first noticed that there might be problems when he was two. He would become quite hysterical when we would throw quite ordinary things in the rubbish bin. That was the first sign that he had some form of OCD. And as Michael aged, this OCD grew along with his years. He took to collecting arbitrary items, such as keys, hoarding them in containers. His parents had to throw things away after he went to bed so that he wouldn't see them doing it. Items, such as household rubbish, that by day, Michael would cling on to. Outside of this obsession for collecting seemingly meaningless items, and his fondness for general waste, he was otherwise still their bright, sunny boy, full of cuddles and kindness. He attended a local primary school and had a lovely group of friends and soared academically. And so, his parents thought that he would grow out of these strange obsessions and were not too concerned by them. But when Michael turned eight, things changed. When Michael was about eight, his mood started to change. They were quite erratic at times. He seemed to become quite depressive and quite angry. Lynn and Paul had split just the year before. Michael remained with Lynn, but both of them maintained a good relationship with Paul, who visited his son several times a week, trying to keep life as normal for Michael, so that the split wouldn't affect him too badly. In addition, Michael had moved from the small local primary school, where he'd had a lot of friends, to a large middle school. From day one, Michael hated the school. He found it hard to make friends, felt lost in the sea of all these unfamiliar faces, and was constantly bullied. At first, Lynn put Michael's mood and behaviour change down to the split and the new school. But the more normal an existence they tried to maintain for Michael, and the more they tried to encourage him to build friendships, the more withdrawn he became, and his erratic behaviour and mood swings became worse. They also started to notice other aspects that gave them cause for concern. Michael avoided eye contact at all costs when being spoken to, which only further challenged him in making friendships and human connections. He also didn't seem to develop any inflection in his voice. Whether he said he loved something or he hated something, his vocal expression remained flat and devoid of emotion. And his obsession with collecting futile objects escalated, as did his attachment to equally pointless items. Lynn was becoming very concerned that maybe something was wrong with Michael, beyond external influences such as school and the split. So, she reached out to her doctors, but they put her concerns down to her mother worrying unnecessarily. Michael was very bright for his age, and they told her that aptitude in children at a young age often is accompanied with mood swings, as they feel that they are not like the other children, which in turn makes it harder for them to connect with children of their own age. And so, Lynn and Paul battled on through the years, with Michael being sweet, funny, happy, and wanting cuddles and kisses from his mum, collecting random objects and turning the light switch on and off precisely 20 times before going to bed, 
to random outbursts and tantrums because Lynn had thrown away a sweet wrapper. But as the years passed, Lynn noticed that Michael seemed preoccupied with things that shouldn't be on the scope of concern for one so young. When Michael was 13, Lynn found a document in Michael's bedroom titled My Autobiography. On the first page, it started out as a normal teenage autobiography, talking about where he was from, the different members of his family, his pets and his hobbies. But when she turned to the second page, she read, I'm wondering what the world is coming to. They say the world will end when the sun blows up in five billion years, but I believe humans will destroy it long before then. And Lynn just knew, as if the penny had finally dropped, that something was wrong with Michael. This wasn't just mood swings and unpredictable behaviour because he was smarter than the average child. He was 13 years old. He should be playing football and video games with his friends. But Michael didn't have any friends, and he didn't play any sports or games. Instead, he worried about the end of the world and the future of mankind. The autobiography was a wake-up call for Michael's parents, and so back to the doctors they went, only to be told that philosophising was a very common trait in children of higher intellect. And so, the family battled on. Michael's parents decided to move him to a different secondary school to get away from the bullying at his old school, and in a vain hope that Michael would make friends in a new environment. But, unfortunately, the bullying started up very quickly at the new school, and in fact, it was worse than before. It became so bad. He deliberately tried to run out in front of cars sometimes, so that in the hope he would get knocked over to avoid going to school. Things were reaching rock bottom for the family. Michael would flip-flop between spiralling bouts of suicidal depression, screaming to his mum that he wanted to die, with his tantrums and obsessive behaviour becoming so bad that no one in the household could throw anything away or touch electrical switches when he was around, to wanting to cuddle up and watch a movie with his mum and give her cards telling her how much he loved her. The family never knew which Michael they were going to get, and soon everyone was walking on eggshells around him. They were reaching breaking point. He was just falling apart. He was losing his grip on the world, not knowing how to fit in or cope. Lynn and Paul felt so helpless and so hopeless. They just didn't know how to help their son. Heartbreaking to watch your child suffer um, and to know, you know, that they are the ones hurting themselves. What do you do? So in the end, everyone, you know, could see the state he was in. But what they did know from what they'd been researching online was that Michael's behavioural traits were just not matching those described by specialists for children with a higher learning potential. And so, back to the doctors they went. But this time, they pushed and they pushed and they pushed until they were finally referred to a child psychologist. And at long last, Michael was given a proper diagnosis. He had Asperger's syndrome, an autism spectrum disorder, and sure enough, Michael's behaviour and traits matched those associated with the syndrome. And Lynn and Paul were left baffled as to how this hadn't been noticed by the doctors long before now. But they were also relieved that they finally knew what was wrong. Michael was placed on medication, and the family hoped this would ease Michael's suffering. But it didn't. In fact, it became worse. Just a year later, when Michael was 14, he was sectioned to a psychiatric hospital. He'd become severely anorexic due to his OCD. And one day, whilst he was at the hospital, Lynn visited Michael, and he told her that he had intentionally starved himself. Because... No, life isn't worth living. I find it too hard. I was really frightened that I was going to lose him. I was terrified. And to make matters worse... The doctors at the hospital told Lynn. 
we were told basically it was too late because he'd been left so long. His behaviours were so ingrained and his eating had gone downhill to such a point that there was no other option. Too late. That's extraordinary. Well, one GP had even said to me, well, he's not going to starve himself to death, is he? But that is essentially what happened. Let's just get this right. Lynn and Paul had fought with the doctors for years to try to get help and a diagnosis for Michael, only for their pleas to be ignored. And now that he was finally getting help, they were told that the help was coming too late for him as his behaviours were too ingrained. <laughs> Beggar's belief. Michael was released from hospital and came home after a few months. He'd received intensive therapy whilst at the hospital, and this had seemed to help him. But once he was released, seemingly all care for him stopped with his discharge. He was not referred to a psychologist or psychiatrist. The attitude was simply, we've put a plaster on the situation, now go home so the cycle can resume. And the cycle did resume. While Michael didn't go back into hospital again, he did continue to bounce, from happy and sunny one minute, making his family laugh with his wacky sense of humour, to the deepest, darkest depths of depression the next. The tantrums and the outbursts continued, but it is of worth to note that not once, ever, did Michael direct his outbursts at anyone. They would be aimed at either inanimate objects or at his own frustrations, but never at another person. In fact, with everyone that came into contact with Michael, he was nothing but loving, kind and polite with them, and with his family also. He showered them with nothing but love. Over the years, Lynn and Paul continued to push for psychiatric help for Michael, but it continuously fell on deaf ears. And so, the family just muddled on. When Michael was 16, he left school, not wanting to spend another day inside those torturous walls. He remained at home with his mum, whom by now had remarried, and her and her new husband had welcomed a baby girl to the family, Jessica, who Michael doted on. He tried to find work after school, but his OCD, lack of social skills, and monotone voice made it hard for him to acquire work. In addition, Michael had developed a suite of other health problems. He'd begun to have seizures, and he suffered from a permanent tremor in his hands that caused him to drop things. He was also diagnosed with Crohn's disease and had cardiac problems. All these ailments combined rendered Michael unemployable, and so he ended up on benefits. But in the years after school, with Michael staying home every day, preferring to be in the comfort and safety of his family home rather than outside with other people, Michael had become fixated on a new obsession the internet. He'd spend countless hours watching YouTube videos and making YouTube videos and joining group chats. And, amazingly, this seemed to bring out the sunny side of Michael. The tantrums and the outbursts became less frequent, and it felt like they were finally getting the old Michael back. And he was very loving to his family. Um, not many 17, 18-year-old boys still write their mum little soppy love you cards and things like that. He bought me a huge cuddly tiger and wrapped a mum necklace around its neck. And the years passed with greater ease until one day when Michael was 18. He sat his parents down and told them he had an announcement. He'd met a girl online and she was his girlfriend. And what's more... He wanted to move to where she was so that they could have a proper relationship. And she lived in America. Well, oh heck no, Lynn and Paul were not okay with that at all. And they did everything they could to dissuade Michael from going to America. But he was adamant. And so, out of desperation... We tried desperately. Um, we went to our local GP, who was horrified. We went to local mental health services. We went to the police um, with our concerns. Um, but we were basically told, because he's 18, unless you have him declared mentally incompetent, there's nothing you can do. And because Michael was so articulate and intelligent, 
he couldn't be declared mentally incompetent. And so, there was nothing that Lynn and Paul could do to stop him. He's 18, he's an adult. He's a vulnerable adult, but you can't stop him doing anything. At 18, the law was on Michael's side, and Lynn and Paul had no say. But if Michael was adamant on going to America, what they could do was try and maintain some control whilst he was there. And so, in the end, they agreed that he could go for 12 months only. They cashed in on an inheritance that Lynn had received some years before and used that money to buy Michael's ticket and a year's rent on an apartment in Hoboken, New Jersey, which overlooked Lower Manhattan in New York. At least doing this, they would know where he would be and that he had a safe place whilst out there. They also agreed to pay him a monthly stipend so that he could survive in America, as his visa would not permit him to work out there. However, their help came with two conditions. Michael had to call them every week, and he had to come home for birthdays and holidays. And Michael whooped with excitement and joy. He ran around all his family members, hugging them and kissing them in turn. And when he got to his baby sister, he scooped her up, hugged her tightly, and promised her he would be home for her birthday and would bring her lots of presents from America. And with the big smile on Michael's face, it was hard for Lynn and Paul not to get caught up in his enthusiasm. As worried as they were about Michael being on his own in a foreign country for 12 months, they genuinely hoped this was the new start that Michael so desperately needed. And so, in January of 2015, the Sanford family were at Heathrow Airport to say goodbye to Michael as he set off on his big adventure. Lynn wept as she hugged her son tightly to her, and he whispered into her ear that he loved her and he'd be back in six weeks for Jessica's birthday. And with that, he set off for America. But, very quickly into his trip, Lynn and Paul became concerned. Michael wasn't calling in weekly, as promised, and when he did call them via video link, he would always be sat in front of a white wall, so they never saw anything of his apartment. And the calls would always be short, with Michael saying he had to get off the call quickly, as he had things to do. The family never once saw or met the American girlfriend he'd gone out there to be with, despite asking to meet her repeatedly. And Michael rarely spoke of her. Michael Klein was Michael's estate agent in Hoboken, who oversaw the apartment building that he'd moved into. He was the smallest, skinniest person I'd ever met, the most polite person that I'd ever met. Michael never mentioned any girl to me or friends or anybody. As a matter of fact, I think I recall him saying he knew nobody here. The family tried not to let their concerns get to them. They figured Michael was having the time of his life, and that was why communication was so sporadic. But when he refused to come home for Jessica's birthday, just simply saying that he couldn't, even though the family had bought him a ticket, their fears grew even more. They began to demand that he return home, but the more that they insisted, the more Michael refused. His communication became less and less, and when the family did hear from him, he was cool and aloof. Well, by now, Lynn was beside herself with worry. Michael was changing, morphing into a boy she barely recognised in their infrequent video chats. He didn't seem to smile anymore. He didn't say he loved her anymore. He was snappy and rude to her, which he had never behaved like this in his entire life towards anyone, but most especially her. She was desperate for him to come home, but she knew that if she pressured him, it would only make him retreat more. As the months rolled by, Michael did not come home for any birthdays or holidays, not even Christmas. He was also supposed to return to England once every three months so that he could renew his three-month tourist visa so he could get back into America. But he didn't even come home for that. And when Lynn questioned him about this, 
he told her, snappily, that he'd been able to renew the tourist visa in the USA. Lynn's only consolation was that she knew that by January of 2016, Michael would have no choice but to return home, as the lease on the apartment would be up. And so, all the family could do was wait for January 2016. But when his due date to come home loomed, with a ticket booked for his return, he told the family that he had extended his visa and would be staying in New York for another six months. His family were devastated, and on top of that, they couldn't afford to keep up the rent on the apartment for another six months. But Michael said this wasn't a problem. He was going to go and live with his girlfriend. So they told him they also couldn't afford to pay him a stipend each month. In fact, all of the money that Lynn had received in her inheritance had gone into paying for this one year in America for Michael. There was simply no more money. But Michael once again said that that was okay, as his girlfriend was going to cover his costs. Lynn and Paul were anything but pleased at this turn of events. But what could they do? He was an adult. He was off exploring the world. He had independence and was standing on his own two feet. Even if they went to the authorities about their concerns, there was nothing that could be done to bring him home. He was an adult in the eyes of the law, and as much as they didn't like it, Lynn and Paul just couldn't begrudge him this opportunity. But as the months went by, the communication with Michael became even less frequent, until it petered off altogether. Lynn kept calling and calling, but Michael wouldn't answer. And then, in early May 2016, Michael's phone was disconnected altogether. Lynn was now terrified. She had absolutely no way of contacting Michael. She didn't know his girlfriend's number or even where she lived other than in New York. The family tried to calm her down, saying that Michael probably hadn't paid the bill, but he'd be in touch as soon as the bill was paid and the phone reconnected. But a couple of weeks later, the phone was still disconnected and Michael still hadn't called Lynn. And so... On the 26th of May 2016, having lost all contact with Michael, Lynn reported him missing to the authorities. I was worried out my mind. I could only see it ending in a disaster. The police contacted Interpol, whom contacted the American authorities, and a search was put out for Michael. But... Neither he nor his supposed girlfriend could be found in New York. As the days passed, Lynn became more and more worried. She called the police every day, but there was never any update. She tried to go on as normal for Jessica, but her stomach was in a perpetual state of knots, and she couldn't shake the feeling that something was terribly wrong. And then... 23 days after Lynn had reported Michael missing, the phone rang in the middle of the night. Groggily, Lynn answered the call. It was the Foreign Office, and they told her... We found him, um, so at first I was delighted that they tracked him down, and I asked where, and obviously it was completely the other side of America from where I'd known him to be. And then they said he was arrested, so I asked what for, and then literally my world just crumbled. You know, I just couldn't believe it. As we heard at the top of the story, Michael had been arrested for attempting to kill Donald Trump at an election rally in Las Vegas. But how had Michael ended up in Las Vegas when he was supposed to be with his girlfriend in New York? And how did he get to Las Vegas when he had no income? And why did someone who never displayed an ounce of violence towards another living soul now want to shoot and kill another person? Well, I have told you the story so far from Lynn's viewpoint. And now it is time to tell you it from Michael's perspective from the moment that he arrived in America up to attempting to assassinate Donald Trump. There was indeed a girlfriend in New York. Her name was Lauren, and she was an aspiring actress. 
and for the first few months that Michael lived in Hoboken, things were going well. He and Lauren were loved up and happy. She introduced him to her friends, and they all took to Michael, and for the first time in his life, he had a girlfriend, he fitted in, he had friends, and he was genuinely happy. But after a few months, things began to change. The sensitive, autistic Michael, whom hated loud noises and shied away from busy areas, started to find New York overwhelming. The constant honking of horns, traffic, loud voices and general street noises permeated his every hour, and as a result, his mental health started to decline. He was finding it hard to sleep, and his paranoia and OCD began increasing. There seemed to be no respite or avoidance from the constant noise that filtered into his conscience. To add to this, Lauren and her friends were very politically motivated. They discussed politics long into the night when they'd meet up, and there was a general consensus among the group that they all despised Trump. Michael had never had any previous interest in politics. Heck, he'd not even voted in the 2015 UK election. But Lauren and her friends' perpetual hate-filled rhetoric towards the presidential nominee saturated also into Michael's brain, gaining in momentum with each politically charged conversation, slowly mingling with the unending noise of the city that inundated his brain. And over the course of the 18 months that he was in America, those noises just got louder and louder until Michael couldn't think straight. He'd actually wanted to return to England at the end of the 12 months, just for a reprieve. Not from Lauren, though. Oh no, he loved Lauren. No, he needed a break from New York, from the noise clattering around in his brain, clouding and crowding his thoughts. He battled on, conflicted, because he didn't want to lose his relationship if he left, and scared of his worsening mental health if he stayed. He didn't share his inner conflict with Lauren, as he didn't want to scare her, so he continued to sit through her and her friends' political rants as they pontificated about how Trump would be the worst thing to happen to America, and how he needed to be stopped. And Michael continued to soak in and absorb their one-sided diatribe, and as he did, the voices and noises in his head became louder and louder. But there was one voice in his head that was getting louder than the others. And just when he thought he couldn't take another day of the voices and noises screaming in his head, Lauren threw him a lifeline in May 2016. She needed to leave New York and go to Los Angeles for an acting job, and she wanted Michael to go with her. However, Michael was now in the US illegally. He had never renewed his visa as he told his mum he had. And so there was no way he could get on a plane and fly. His passport would be flagged at the airport immediately. So Michael sold some of his possessions, had his mobile phone disconnected to save money, and used that money to buy a second-hand car. And then he drove from New York to LA. He had hoped that this week driving across the country would quieten the uproar rattling around his head. And it did, to some degree. But that one voice was still coming through loud and clear. And, as he drove in silence for days, he had a lot of time to think. And his mind kept going over and over the conversations he'd had with Lauren and her friends. And the more he thought about the conversations the louder this one voice got, until, at times, Michael had to pull over to the side of the road, and holding his head in his hands, he would rock back and forth, singing as loud as he could, to drown out the voice that was now screaming at him. Kill him! Michael couldn't wait to get to L.A., to be with Lauren, to feel safe with someone, because he certainly didn't feel safe with himself. However when he got to the flat in L.A. that Lauren was sharing with friends. He found out that she had been arrested on drug charges and was in jail. So now Michael had nowhere to go, no place to stay, 
No girlfriend, no money, no option of getting money as he couldn't work because he was an illegal immigrant. And all the while, that voice was escalating in his brain. Not knowing what to do, Michael began sleeping in his car. He rummaged through bins for food. And this is how he lived for two weeks, waiting for Lauren to be released. Having sold many of his gadgets to pay for his cross-country trip, Michael's only source of entertainment was the radio in the car. And, as there was a presidential race in full swing across the country, all the radio played on a loop were stories about Donald Trump, his voice booming through the speakers in the confined space of the car, which only fueled the voice in Michael's head to a fever pitch. And then, one day, over the radio, he heard that Trump was going to do a rally at the Mystia Theatre at the Treasure Island Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. And as he listened to the news broadcaster, the voice in his head shouted at him, Go! Las Vegas was 270 miles, or 435 kilometres from LA, and he was near broke. But the voice had commanded him, and he knew it would scream at him until he went. So, he pawned the last of anything valuable that he had to his name to scrounge up the cash for the journey, and he set out for Las Vegas. He arrived in Las Vegas on the 17th of June. He cruised around the city until he found what he was looking for, the Battlefield Vegas shooting range, where he asked to be trained to use a 9mm Glock pistol for target practice. He then fired 20 rounds at a paper target. Why this gun? Well, because it was the same make and model carried by Trump's police guards. After the shooting range, Michael drove to a parking lot near the Mystere Theatre. He slept for a few hours in the car and awoke early on the 18th of June and went and stood in line for the rally. He queued for nine hours to ensure that he got a seat near the front. When the doors were finally opened, people were patted down and searched before being let into the theatre. Why did the police not detect a weapon on Michael if he was searched, I hear you ask? Well, because Michael didn't have a weapon on him. He had no way to purchase a gun, not just because he was broke, but because an illegal immigrant purchasing a firearm would have raised an immediate call to the authorities. So no. He didn't have a weapon, but he did have a plan. Michael managed to get himself a seat just two rows from the front of the stage. And as the noise in the theatre grew with the rallying calls of the Trump supporters, so did the voice in his head. Kill him, kill him, kill him, kill him, kill him, kill him! And as Trump took to the stage, the yells from the crowd clamoured to fever pitch. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We love being with you. And as the noise screeched through his brain, one sound suddenly came through, drowning out all the noise in the theatre. It was calm. It was controlled. It was demanding. Do it. Michael got up and walked over to Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Officer Emil Jacob. Michael had been watching the officer and noticed that his gun holster was unclipped. He approached the officer and asked him if it was possible to get Trump's autograph. As Jacob leant in to hear Michael better over the noise, Michael reached down, slipped his hand over the officer's gun and tried to pull it out of the holster. Realising what was happening, Officer Jacob rounded on Michael, grabbing his arms and twisting them up behind his back. Other officers saw the scuffle and they too grabbed Michael and shoved him to the ground. Are you serious Something that hadn't gone unnoticed by the crowds or the man on stage. Uh, we love our to the sound of booing, Michael was led out through the crowd in the theatre. It was all over within just a few seconds. Michael was handed over to the United States Secret Service, and during questioning he told them that Trump was a racist whom deserved to die and that he'd purposely come to Las Vegas to try to kill him. What he didn't tell them 
was the voices in his head that had driven him to do this desperate act. He was charged with illegal firearm possession, because he had tried to grab an officer's gun, disrupting government functions, and of course, for being in the United States illegally. He was assigned a public defendant, who spent only an hour with him before Michael went up against a court later that same day for his charges. Once again, he did not allude to his mental health problems, and so when his defendant went up before the judge, she could only argue that Michael should go to a halfway house instead of jail because he didn't have a criminal history, and hadn't actually caused any harm. But the judge denied this suggestion and assigned Michael to the Nevada Southern Detention Center. He was also denied bail. And this is when Lynn received that middle-of-the-night phone call to tell her that Michael had been found. The phone call that took the bottom out of her world. Immediately, Lynn started to call all the authorities she could think of to get answers. But all she was able to find out was where he was being detained. And this was the only information she would have for several weeks. She desperately wanted to go out to America to be with Michael, but she couldn't leave Jessica, and she couldn't take her with her, as she didn't have a passport. So, a week after Michael's detainment, Paul flew out to Nevada to be with his son. However, even though Michael was being held in a medium-security facility, Paul was denied being able to see his son in person. Instead, for the entire week that Paul was in Nevada, he was permitted one video link call with Michael that lasted an hour. After the video call, Paul called Lynn and told her, Michael seemed very bewildered, quite disorientated, didn't really seem to understand what's going on around him or what the consequences were going to be. So he's quite, quite dazed and confused, I think. Even the prison officers had become concerned about Michael's disorientation and lack of understanding of what was happening. And as they saw the boy's anxiety and depression grow, it was decided he should be put on suicide watch. And so, Michael was detained to his cell for 22 hours a day. <sighs> I will never understand how locking someone up with their suicidal thoughts for all but two hours of the day will dissuade anyone from wanting to commit suicide. <laughs> Michael's sentencing was due for the end of July, four weeks after his attempted attack on Trump. After admitting trying to kill Trump and agreeing to pleading guilty, he was offered a plea bargain to try reduce his sentence. But, even with this plea deal... The maximum under the law is 20 years for Michael, so... He could be looking at many, many years in prison. I've been told he faces 30 years in prison and ridiculous amounts of fines, and there is no way he would be able to cope with that. And he, he would just see there was no point. You know, why would he live the next 30 years of his life in these situations? So I fear, yes, he would attempt to commit suicide. During the weeks leading up to the sentencing, Michael's public defendant, Brenda Wexler, worked more closely with him to help build his case. She also spoke extensively with Lynn, and slowly, the bigger picture of Michael's mental health issues began to emerge, and how the deterioration of his rationale during his time in America had led to this incident. By the fact that Michael didn't go to the scene of the crime with a weapon, and that he was inexperienced at using a firearm, except for that one target practice at the shooting range the day before the incident, all contributed towards a strong defence for Michael. But, on the other hand... The government will be arguing that this was not something that was a spur-of-the-moment type of crime. This was something that he had been, uh, that had been calculated. They're going to be arguing that this was, in fact, a very dangerous situation and could have resulted in, in somebody being murdered. He tried to assassinate him. He was a wolf in sheep's clothing. Michael Sanford could have altered the course of American history. Lynn was able to fly out to Nevada for Michael's sentencing in July 2016. But... The judge delayed the trial, 
and Lynn had to leave behind a sobbing Michael, begging her not to go. Lynn did speak to Brenda Wexler while she was in Nevada, and Brenda advised her to get legal representation in the UK also, as this was going to be a complicated case, especially with what Lynn had in mind. So, Lynn returned to England, having not seen her son. But she was on a mission. On landing in the UK, Lynn started contacting every media outlet that she could think of, lining up interviews to discuss what had happened with Michael. And she was not short of willing parties. Every channel was clamouring to find out just why a young man from a sleepy rural area of England would try to kill Trump. She gave interview after interview in which she talked about Michael's declining mental health that had led to his action, raising awareness and national empathy. But throughout all her interviews, Lynn had honed in on a focus. I would like him deported so he could be back in this country so he could get psychiatric help. We want to try to bring him home to the UK to a secure place that will help him. Autistic adults can have the insight and behaviour of a small child. I accept that Michael has tried to do a bad thing, but he is mentally ill and is not a bad or dangerous person. Jail's no place for him. He needs, he needs help, but not, not prison. You see, whilst Lynn had been out in America, she learnt that regardless of mental health issues being the genesis for a crime, people would be locked up in prison. End of. Whereas, in the UK, if someone is found guilty of a crime based on mental incapacitation of any degree, they would be sent to a prison that focuses solely on psychiatric rehabilitation. And this is what she wanted for Michael. Oh, she didn't condone what Michael had done and absolutely believed he needed to be punished. But she believed in him being punished in a way that would assist in restoring his mental health, so that he could be in a better place once he'd served his penance, as opposed to punishment for the sake of punishment, in a prison system whereby, even if he managed to survive his sentence, he would re-emerge more damaged than when he went in. So... She was campaigning for Michael to be deported back to the UK to serve his sentence here. However, a deportation order would also require legal representation in the UK, of which the Sanford family just could not afford. All the money they had had been sunk into giving Michael one year in America. And so, she set up a crowdfunding page. A target of £25,000 was set, to help pay for the legal fees. But, thanks to all of Lynn's interviews, Michael's story was being shared across the UK, and it was hitting at the heart of a nation, whom all felt for this vulnerable young man who clearly needed help, not punishment. You only have to see a picture of the innocent-looking, naive young man to realise this was not someone who was calculated and malicious. And so, within weeks, the fund had hit £33,000. Michael's trial was rescheduled for October 2016. But, once again, it was delayed. This time, to December 13th, 2016. When Michael heard about this, he sent a letter to Lynn. Tears are streaming down my face as I write this. I miss you all, and I love you all more than words can explain. I'm so alone, cold, and scared here. I feel awful about the way I've treated you all. Mum, I'll be the son that you deserve. I'm so scared. I need you all. And Lynn was scared for her son. Prison was not the right place for Michael. Yes, he'd attempted to do something awful something that now he truly regretted, and not just because he was serving time, but because he was no longer being influenced by people who affected his mental stability and comprehension of the world at large. But you do understand that what you attempted to do wasn't right, don't you? Oh, of course, absolutely. I'd never choose something like that. I'd never choose uh, anyone. No, I know that, Michael, I know that. 
As Michael rotted away in jail, he became frailer and weaker. His anxieties and paranoia were escalating as he potentially faced a lifetime behind bars. This already waif-like young man lost a tremendous amount of weight, and his seizures and hand tremors became much, much more severe. He's in a prison where there are lifers who support Trump. I still lie awake at night a lot of times expecting that phone call saying there's been an incident. And then, just five weeks before his sentencing was due. It was a scene few could imagine just a few hours earlier. Donald Trump trailing in the polls for much of the campaign, emerging victorious in a presidential result that stunned the nation and the world. There's no getting away from it now. I mean, he is going to be president for the next four years. We have sentencing coming up next month, and whether Donald Trump will choose to make an example of Michael remains to be seen. Thank you. Thank you very much, everybody. I'm very worried that he will either lose his mind completely or commit suicide if he had the opportunity. You know, I want to be able to keep him strong and to give him hope. But a lot of that hope was dashed last night with the outcome of this. And Michael's mental health plummeted after Trump was voted in. In early December 2016, Paul and Lynn flew out to Nevada for the sentencing, which they were assured would go ahead this time. They met with Brenda Wexler, and she outlined her thoughts about the case. The reality is that you have Michael admitting that he tried to assassinate what is now President-elect Trump. And frankly, I don't think that that was Michael Sanford. That's not the Michael that I've certainly have come to know in the last few months. But uh, that's certainly the Michael that the government's going to be portraying at sentencing. Michael's trial started on the 13th of December. Throughout the trial, Brenda constantly highlighted Michael's prolonged mental health issues and lack of support to address these needs throughout his life, focusing on the fact that had he received the correct support, he may not be stood here in court today, and so to send him to prison where he would continue to not receive support would be the worst possible outcome for someone whose actions had clearly been a cry for help. In a rare move in such a case, Brenda allowed Michael to take the stand. I would like to take this opportunity to apologise for everyone involved. I feel terrible and awful about what I did and I'm extremely ashamed of myself. I am not a violent person and I do not wish to harm or hurt anyone. I deserve to be in prison for the rest of my life. However, I would like to ask for mercy as my bad mental health was the reason for me committing this crime. I would like to be able to go home so I can be with my family and get the treatment I need. However, the prosecution outlined that Michael had spent a year devising the attack and had purposefully driven 270 miles to undertake the offence, even going for target practice the day before the foiled assault. The defendant and the prosecutor rested their cases, and now it was up to the judge to determine whether Michael Sanford would face up to 20 years in prison, or in an unprecedented move in the United States, consider the mental health of the perpetrator with regards to the sentencing. And the judge that was appointed to Michael's trial was a Republican supporter. Michael Sanford is in there now dressed in an orange jumpsuit. He is tethered at the ankles. His family say that uh, he is um, someone who's had a lifetime of mental health issues and therefore they're, they're asking the court to show some leniency. That is now in the hands of the judge and we're expecting that verdict at some time in the next hour. The judge returned to the bench just one hour after arguments had concluded and... We are joined now by Michael's mum and dad, who are in Las Vegas. Very good morning to you. And um, I suppose your overwhelming feeling must be one of relief because the sentence could have been so much worse. Yeah, we're absolutely delighted over the moon. Um, the judge was a very reasonable and compassionate man. 
I thought the judge was absolutely fantastic and I was really shocked about it. I had worried that with Mr Trump being president-elect, that may influence the way that the sentencing went, but that the judge was just so aware of Michael's condition. Michael made a statement to the court and he apologised for wasting everyone's time and causing so much disruption. And the judge just turned around to him and said, Michael, you don't need to apologise. If you had a heart condition, you'd be on medication for it. You've got a condition that affects you mentally. You weren't on medication for it, now you are. And he was just so supportive of Michael, it was fantastic. Just to clarify, Judge James Mahon had recognised Michael's mental health issues and had taken this into consideration when sentencing him. And so, Michael had been given 12 months and one day with time served already, taken into consideration. <laughs> oh, unbelievable. This just doesn't happen in the judicial system, especially in the USA, where, unless pleading insanity, there are few mental health considerations afforded at trial. But Judge James Mahon had seen the real Michael on the stand, had looked into the eyes of this naive young man whose unmedicated mental anguish had gotten the better of him, seeing that his actions, not just in his thwarted crime, but throughout his life, had been a never-ending cry for help, and had thus afforded him mercy. Well, <laughs> hallelujah and amen. Needless to say, this was an unprecedented case in Nevada, and in fact, US legal history. A person whom attempted to assassinate a presidential nominee and walked away with a light sentence? <laughs> Unheard of. But now, true. Because time served was taken into consideration, and because of Michael's exemplary behaviour whilst incarcerated, he was permitted to leave prison and return home to Dorking in Surrey in May 2017, just five months after his sentencing. He was a free man. Of course, as part of his conditions of release, he was deported from the USA, and thus never allowed back in the country. And you know what? That's okay for Michael. He's so happy to be home, with his loving family, and living the life of a free man. He has no intention of leaving the United Kingdom, ever again. Michael and his family have conducted only one interview after his release, preferring to retreat to the shadows to pick up the pieces of their lives. And who can blame them? I think I'd do the same thing in their position, wouldn't you? But what I can tell you is that Michael is now, finally, receiving the long-awaited help he has needed since being a young child. At the top of the episode, I told you that this story was quite widely shared in the UK. However, in the USA, outside of local media coverage, the story gained little traction in mainstream media across the country. Even Trump didn't take advantage of this incident, instead falling back on his Twitter posts of crooked Hillary epithets. Why, I hear you ask. Well, I'll tell you why. But first, I need to insert a disclaimer. What I'm about to tell you is based on open information I've found online. It is not my opinion, let alone my political opinion. No, this is purely a speculative opinion outlined by journalists, with some saying that because the attack was so poorly planned and executed, it didn't warrant as a valid attempt on the presidential nominee's life. Ergo, it was a non-story. However, other journalists levied a different reason. They proffered that as Trump wasn't making a big deal of the incident, there was no reason for the media to highlight it. After all, Trump was giving them far more reader and listenership than any other potential POTUS had ever done. So if he wasn't covering a story, they wouldn't gain any increased numbers if they covered it. But one media outlet had a different speculation about why Trump chose not to acknowledge the incident. And I use the word speculate strongly here, as it is merely an implication in the article. 
We have some bad, bad hombres here in this country, and we're going to get them out. You see, being a white, British, non-Muslim man did not fit Trump's narrative of a perceived threat to the USA from illegal immigrants. In fact, Michael's attempt was actually counterproductive to Trump's description of this threat. And so, they buried the story instead. Again, this is not my opinion. I am merely relaying information I have found online, and links to this will be in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed today's story, Michael's story, that of a naive, mentally anguished, vulnerable young man whom traversed a continent and almost committed a murder before the authorities would finally hear his cry for help. And sadly, Michael's story is not unique. Okay, well it is in terms of trying to assassinate a presidential nominee, but it is not in terms of people committing crimes before their cry for help will be acknowledged. And unfortunately, this is a sad state of affairs in most countries when it comes to dealing with mental health issues. Oh yes, we've come a long way since the days of telling people to man up and chin up but we're still so far from where we need to be in terms of addressing the needs of those suffering from mental health issues. And this is because mental health care is so woefully underfunded across the world. In recent years, celebrities like Prince Harry have highlighted their struggle with mental health and thus have brought the topic more into public focus. But it really has been the COVID pandemic that has thrust mental health to the public forefront. As people across the globe have faced months in isolation, forcing them to go weeks, if not months, without speaking to another soul. More needs to be done to bring awareness to this plight. We all know this. But unless we all start discussing these issues, our issues, open and freely with one another, with our doctors, with our lawmakers, will we finally break down the age-old stigma surrounding this health issue that affects one in four of us? And just to put that into perspective, that amounts to approximately 450 million people whom currently suffer from mental health disorders across the world. This makes mental health issues among the leading cause of ill health and disability globally. Yeah, I'll just let that one sink in. And now we're on to that part of the episode where I give my thanks. There's two in particular I'd like to give this week. Firstly, a lovely lady called Fleda, and I'm really hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly, whom is from, as she describes it, the Prairies of Canada. Well, Fleda reached out to me on email to offer me some constructive advice on the podcast, and I have to say, she's taught me a thing or two about grammar, which I'm wholly appreciative of. We've ended up having a lovely exchange over email, and it's been a pleasure to get to know her. I hope I got the pronouns right this week, Fleda. Whilst, I hope you have quickly learnt your subordinating conjunctions. <laughs> Secondly, for those of you on my social media, you will have seen that I received a five-star review from Red Rum. Only one of my favourite true crime podcasts out there. It is a relatively new podcast, like yours truly. And in fact, actually, they started just six months before me. The show is hosted by Grace, and each episode focuses on the plight of the victim, with such empathy and compassion that I'm left in near tears at the end of each episode. Grace's haunting voice just adds to the overall ambiance and brings gravitas to that empathy. So, as a thank you to Grace and Red Rum, can I please ask that you check out her most excellent podcast? Trust me, you won't regret it. And now, of course, we're on to that part of the show where I'm probably asking to drink monkey milk in Mandarin rather than thanking respective countries for their listenership. Oh yes, it's time for my country thanks. So, on to the weekly annihilation. This week, I'd like to thank 
Pakistan, Hilo Arajakriya, and the United Arab Emirates. Marhaban Big Washukran. Okay, I really do think I did ask for monkey milk this week. But, as always, my deepest apologies. You know I'm trying my best. And now it's time for my weekly request to you, my lovely listeners. Please, please, can you rate and review this podcast at Apple iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts? You would be making one little podcaster whom can literally smell freedom on the horizon as we're in the last weeks of lockdown. Very, very happy. And on that note, please don't forget to stay safe, stay alert. Soothes. Over and out.